From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's an issue voters tell us over and over they're passionate about. Housing, the availability of it, and even more, the cost of it. CPR's Andrew Kenny has been looking into what policies the candidates for governor think would help. Then, memories rush in when artist Juan Fuentes sees the black and white image he made of the bus that took him between Denver and Mexico. The smell of the bus, getting excited because I would create like a a CD mix for the ride back to my hometown because usually it was about, you know, 20-hour bus ride. Fuentes celebrates old Denver with a popular Instagram account. Now he turns the camera on his own life. We'll visit his new show at the Denver Art Museum. And why we're courting musicians from Southern Colorado. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Housing costs have been climbing for years, and they're a huge issue for many Colorado voters. Voters like Richard Montoya. He's a conservative in Thornton with a family of five. And he says skyrocketing prices have kept home ownership out of reach. This is insane. I mean, I make pretty good money, you know, I, I think anyway. And you can't even really buy afford to buy a house. You're kind of stuck in an apartment. You save up and prices just keep going, going up. So Montoya has a question for the gubernatorial candidates. What's their goal from a year now, five years, ten years? Or is it just, you know, just keep going up until you're forced to move out of Colorado, I guess. With the midterms approaching, CPR News public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny got some answers. Hi, Andy. Hello. You interviewed Governor Jared Polis and his Republican rival Heidi Ganahl about what they would do to address high housing prices. Uh, before we dive in, though, some perspective. How does Richard Montoya's experience stack up? It's almost universal, especially among people renting, people trying to buy their first homes, even people trying to buy a bigger home. All of them have faced just huge price hikes, especially over the last few years. It's been going on for more than a decade, but recently it's just been nuts. And, you know, it's like people can't pay the rent. They can't keep up with the rent. They can't make a down payment. And it's not just Metro Denver where this is happening. I looked it up and rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Colorado Springs has gone up 38% since 2018, last time we had a governor election. The sales price for a typical home in Pueblo County by some measures is up 70%. Oh. To about $326,000. Well, let's start with Governor Jared Polis. What's his explanation for why these increases have happened over the last few years of his term? Well, first, I should say that this is a national phenomenon. Prices are up all over the place. And Polis also noted there are some short-term reasons, supply chain disruptions that are driving up housing prices. But for the governor, he thinks there's actually a much bigger problem that is in our control. In many ways, the lack of housing is a completely contrived problem. It's a problem of our own making. And we can uh, unleash and and remove barriers to significantly more opportunities for housing. Contrived? What does he mean? He's referring to this idea that the government, especially cities and towns, have made it too hard for developers to build housing. 
and specifically that cities aren't doing enough to allow more density. And so there's a supply and demand problem. He thinks that the best way to build more housing and more quickly is to let developers build apartments, condos, townhomes to fit more homes on less land more efficiently. Yes, we need more uh, housing density in many parts of our state. We need it along transit corridors and close to where uh, jobs are. Uh, what we don't need is more exurban sprawl, which would uh, worsen our water issues for the entire state, put more traffic on the roads, and decrease our air quality. Is that something a governor has control over? That's the rub. The governor doesn't really control zoning codes, doesn't control uh, what gets built where. He can't say, okay, developer, go and build an apartment complex here. The cities make those rules about what goes where. But Polis is saying he wants the state to have a little bit more influence in shaping what kind of development the cities allow. What is he proposing? Well, it starts with money. They've already done this financial incentives. Right now, the state is giving out hundreds of millions of dollars in federal grants for housing. And under laws signed and encouraged by Polis, cities will get more money if they change their zoning rules, their development rules, to allow denser, transit-oriented development. And here's how Polis described that. But the initial piece that we did is made sure that it wasn't just money shoved into a failing system that fails to deliver housing close to where jobs are, but it was aligned with incentives for local government to do the right things with regard to an interjurisdictional approach to housing. A failing system previously, the governor says. Is that the only power the state has over housing, Andy? Right now, it's the only power they've used is that financial power, but we don't really know yet how much farther polis might want to push. But we could look at other states. California is the poster child for expensive housing, and they've started to pass laws just recently at the state level that have really changed development rules all across California, allowing for more density on commercial corridors or near transit, and really kind of overriding local power in California. And that's kind of referred to as YIMBY politics. That's yes in my backyard. And yet in Colorado, local control is a touchstone. Is Polis ready to pick a fight with local governments over this? I don't know about a fight. He hasn't gotten into the specifics, but he's raised some flags, dropped some hints. When I asked him if the state could use a little more muscle when it comes to housing, he made this argument to me that housing isn't entirely a matter of local control. What we find more and more is that the decisions of one community impact not only themselves, but their neighbors. And that is, that's never been uh, what the essence of local control is. It's you control your own destiny. It's not you control the destiny of your neighbors. Ah, he's hinting at spillover. So if you read between the lines, perhaps it suggests that if he gets a second term, Jared Polis may take some new steps to really push cities to allow denser development. Well, why don't we move to his Republican challenger, Heidi Ganahl? What's her approach to housing? Well, I asked Heidi Ganahl the same question as I asked Polis, which is, why is housing so expensive? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? One of the reasons is that a fourth of the cost of new residential builds is regulatory, whether it's a local municipality or the state or, you know, uh, there's so many um, ways that fees and taxes and regulations are added to new housing. Also, the cost of insurance with the construction defects situation in Denver. Um, So you've got a lot of um, layers right there. Then you've got to incentivize um, builders to want to build here. Mm, A point of agreement. I mean, they're both saying it's hard, too expensive to build housing. You need to unleash developers and builders. 
Yeah, that's right. I will say that Ganahl's a little bit more critical of state-level regulations. She didn't call out any in particular, but Democrats passed uh, laws meant to encourage more energy-efficient buildings, for example, and that could add to the costs of housing. That hasn't been so much a focus for Polis' criticism. Uh-huh. That said, Ganahl is also interested in dense, efficient housing, and she also brought up the idea that, yeah, sometimes city rules like zoning codes make it hard to build that. But how she talks about local governments and their zoning codes is a little bit different than Polis. It's really up to the local municipalities to manage their growth. Um, But I can partner with them as a governor and incentivize them to look at old malls or big retail developments and figure out if we can rezone it to create new, cool, innovative housing. I'm hearing incentive, or I guess incentivize in this case, from both of them. Uh, Are they proposing the same kind of incentives, though? So like we said, Polis has already rolled out these financial incentives, more money for more density. Yeah. But Ganahl said she's not a fan of using public dollars like that. You know me, I, I'm, I'm more about uh, letting the free markets do their thing and using other kinds of incentives. Um, we've got a lot of problems we've got to solve in Colorado that we need our government funds for. Um, so I think there's other ways to do it. Other ways to do it. What would she do instead? Well, she hasn't said, um, you know, both candidates say they want to start a conversation. They just want to talk to the cities, work as partners. But it seemed like Polis has been a little more explicit about having a stronger state role overall, while Ganahl just tended to kind of defer more to talking to the cities, deferring to the cities. Overall, I defer to local uh, municipalities or governments to make those decisions, but I can certainly incentivize them and talk about um, other places that are doing it really well. You are listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking about housing policy in the governor's race as the midterms approach with Andrew Kenny from our public affairs team. Okay, we've heard both of these gubernatorial candidates talk a lot about increasing the total supply of housing by, indeed, unleashing the private market so developers can build more. What about projects based on public money? I mean, I'm really thinking, Andy, here of affordable housing. Yep. Right. You're, you're exactly right. These two are really talking about supply side, just building more housing in general, more supply. But they've put less focus, I'll say, on what is sometimes called affordable housing with a capital A, which mm. is, you know, like formal government subsidized development where there are strict limits on rent and prices. What has Polis said about those programs? Well, he pointed out that the state is spending hundreds of millions of dollars and, and federal money on affordable housing. It's ramped up state funding. He said that affordable housing is important. It gets people housed, but the large scale government spending alone won't solve the problem. And because besides just the issue of not being able to build enough affordable housing, there's also the fact that he points out a lot of that capital A affordable housing uh-huh. is really rentals, which uh, not homes you can own. The capital A affordable housing program is helpful to provide a place to live, but it should never hold us back from the kind of reforms we need to build more housing that's affordable, affordable with a small A for people to be able to purchase and own and benefit from the appreciation. And I'll say the state has increased funding, but he didn't give a firm answer when I asked if he really wanted to expand affordable housing funding further. To grow it. And what about Heidi Ganahl? What does she say about subsidized housing? Well, like Polis, she said it's not going to solve the problem on its own. It's not working fast enough. Uh, So we've got to have some big, bold ideas on tackling this issue or we're going to have some real problems here. Like our kids and grandkids aren't going to be able to stay here. I mean, that really echoes the fears we heard from Richard Montoya at the very beginning of our conversation, I think. 
Yeah, and I should mention separately one last thing. There is a ballot initiative this year that voters like Montoya will decide on that would dedicate close to $300 million to affordable housing programs per year. Neither Polis nor Ganahl have come up in support or in opposition to that measure. Okay. Did you ask them about that? I did. You did. All right. Uh, We'll do that too, Andy Kenny, because we have the candidates for governor slated to come onto the program uh, the week after next. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate the insight. Thank you. That is Andrew Kenny. He is on our public affairs team talking to us about the gubernatorial candidates, Jared Polis and Heidi Ganahl on housing. Coming up, the man behind the old Denver Instagram account. Now he has turned the camera on his own life and his family's migration story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Photographer Juan Fuentes started out capturing how much the city he's known since he was little is changing. Then he decided to get more personal turning the camera on his own life and his family's migration story, as well as those of his friends. Now, Fuentes' work is part of a show at the Denver Art Museum. I asked him to read the name of his installation off the little plaque next to his artwork. On the dirt our knees tell truths, en la tierra nuestras rodillas dicen verdades. What does that mean to you? It's an excerpt from a poem from Javier Zamora, who's an immigrant from El Salvador. But to me, it represents the honesty of those that work this land. Work that is often done on one's knees, and one's knees become the symbol of how hard that work is. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, the the immigrant experience, uh, you know, for the most part here in in the United States also comes with the very hard labor. Fuentes' corner of the exhibition feels homey, like walking into someone's living room, peering at their family photos. There's even a little mantle covered in fabric. Juan Fuentes says he came to Colorado when he was one year old in 1991. So that's not something you necessarily have a memory of. No, not much. What brought your family here? Work. Um, in the 80s, my dad was the one that was coming here temporarily to work and try to provide for our family down in Mexico. And then in the early 90s, he made the decision to bring us all and make it a more permanent place. Is that a decision you're glad of? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful and grateful to have had the experience of, of getting to grow up in a place like Denver and then also at the same time be able to have family in Mexico and and have that experience as well. We are hearing in the background the many sounds, the chorus of all of the various installations in this show. This exhibition you're part of is called Who Tells a Tale Adds a Tale, Latin America and Contemporary Art. The curator commissioned 19 artists, including you, were surrounded in addition to your photographs by glowing neon and these sort of stuffed figures climbing up the wall. It's a really kinetic environment. I understand that when you were little, you used disposable cameras 
to capture parts of your life. Yeah, yeah. It was mostly just on family vacations and things like that. I was, I don't know, for whatever reason, I ended up with the cameras in my hand and taking the pictures of, of my family. So yeah, a lot of uh, my memories that are still around come from disposable cameras. For, for those who are maybe a bit younger than us, disposable cameras were all the rage before smartphones started taking pictures. Oh yeah, yeah. It was an easy way to like uh, photograph and go develop them at Walgreens or something. Do you remember the excitement of getting your photos developed and showing up hoping they were ready? <laughs> yeah, and then, but also the disappointment when you would get them back and then you realize you put your finger in front of the lens the whole time and, you know, kind of ruined a few memories. <laughs> so how did those early photographs inform this magnificent wall that we are standing in front of? There are photos lined up unframed, some are framed, and they're all slightly different. So it has this very musical quality. Yeah, and I was definitely trying to tap into that feeling I used to get from getting a disposable camera back. So the few of the, the images that you see unframed are actually from a disposable camera. So yeah, that was to kind of go back to that place. I see one of a church, and it's right next to another of hanging laundry. Where are these spots? These are in my hometown of Cuauhtémoc, Chihuahua, and these were all taken by my brother who lives there. Um, and this was like a collaboration between him and I, and I would be sending him the cameras. And so I just told him to document as if we were back in, you know, in, on our summer trips and taking the photographs of the things that, you know, we grew up with. So those specifically is the the big cathedral at the center of the city there, and then the clothes hanging are from my uncle who, if you walk into my grandma's backyard, there's almost always his clothes hanging in the back. <laughs> Why is your brother in Mexico? Um, yeah, a few years back, he was actually uh, deported. So, um, you know, him and I both grew up here um, throughout our whole lives. And then since 2018, he's been back in, in our hometown. The uncertainty of not knowing when, when I get to see him again is tough for sure. How was it to see the images he'd taken? Oh, it was beautiful. It was emotional. Also, like, super surprised. Like, he's, like, instinctually like a photographer, I think, as well. <laughs> yeah, they're just beautiful images, and they just carried so much weight and um, nostalgia, and he really captured our hometown. Having his brother take pictures with a disposable camera is one way artist Juan Fuentes can capture the hometown in Mexico he can't visit right now. Another way is at the center of his collection at the Denver Art Museum. Three images in gold frames. They are screen grabs from Google Street View in Cuauhtémoc. The largest one has a man standing in the street. Part of the, I guess, experimenting was the idea of like, bringing this preciousness to images that you normally don't see framed. And also not putting too much importance into whose images are whose, but more so on what stories they're telling. That was also the idea of, like, uh, how, you know, utilize technology to document my hometown without having access to it. And this specifically was actually going through by my grandma's house and turning a corner and seeing my uncle there. So that's actually my uncle. So, yeah, kind of reclaiming and appropriating those images into what feels like a family archive. I asked Juan Fuentes to point us to a photograph he made on this wall that is particularly meaningful. Yeah, so th at the beginning of this wall are six images that are mine. Black and white. Black and white is usually the 
approach that I take into photography. Um, but actually, the, the first image that it starts with is a very meaningful one. It's uh, outside of this bus station here in Denver called Los Paisanos. And this is a photograph that I took back in 2017 while people were boarding the last bus of the day, which is the late bus. And uh, it's meaningful to me because it's part of like my memory going back to Mexico as a kid was always hopping into the late bus at Los Paisanos and getting to see um, <clears throat> so many families going back home to reconnect with their families. And yeah, it's just a very special uh, image that brings back a lot of memories, you know, the, the smell of the bus, getting excited because I would, you know, had created like a, a CD mix for the ride back to my hometown because usually it was about, you know, 20 hour bus ride. So always getting excited to just to be in the bus, get to see the scenery, listen to some new music, and then also just the excitement of like, I knew the following day I'd be back home. Los Paisanos, the countryman in Spanish, and this is a bus that goes between here and several destinations in Mexico. I lived a couple of blocks from there, and what I remember, and I wonder if this stands out in your memory, are the vendors who show up, especially when the buses arrive, selling all sorts of Mexican treats. Yeah, yeah, there's always vendors. That was also part of the, the excitement, getting to get some chucherias, as we call them, before we hop on. What do you remember listening to on that playlist? Is there a song you still hear? Oh, man. I mean, I guess the last bus ride I took, I, I remember, like, last minute going to the CD store called Sam Goodies that's not around anymore. Um, yeah, and I bought, at that time in the early 2000s, uh, Houston rap was really popular, and uh, I bought um, Lil Flip and uh, Slim Thug. <laughs> and those I like listened throughout that whole summer. And those are like the last, I think, songs I hear when I think about my last trip to Mexico. What story do you hope to tell or experience do you hope to get across with this show? One that I hope that, you know, immigrants experience, you know, things similar to me can like uh, see themselves and, and find the little details that, you know, point at the fact that I am an immigrant um, and that these are a lot of things that we've all, you know, used to reconnect to our, our, our place of birth. And a lot of us coming from Mexico, um, I hope, you know, see themselves, uh, you know, outside of the photographs, I also created a, a, a cross made out of these uh, del cel, or Telmex cards, which were like long distance phone cards um, that I used to collect in Mexico because they would have like different things on it. To me, I just wanted to add small details to that idea of like, these are the items and the artifacts that we used to, that we grew up on that were the only technology for keeping that connection when you have an experience of having to leave a country and, you know, having family back there and having this distance in between that. Um, Yeah, so to me, uh, the story I wanted to tell is my own personal one, but with the hopes that a lot of people can connect to it and, and also see themselves within it. Juan, I don't know if you have seen these TikTok videos of young black girls watching as they see that the Little Mermaid is black yeah. and the delight in their eyes. And I couldn't help but think of that as you were describing your reason for this show, that there are going to be people who come into this museum and see themselves represented in your images and feel recognized and recognize symbols. And I wonder to some extent if your goal is comfort, is to say, I see you. 
Yeah, without a doubt, it's comfort, and it, and it's why the approach of the the wall here in this installation is kind of to resemble the the wall you would see at like my grandma's house. Um, yeah, it has a living room feel. Yeah, yeah, and to me, that's comfort. That's that's a safe space, and um, and yeah, without a doubt. Um, representation and being able to see ourselves, uh, you know, in these big institutions is very important and is very intentional within my decision to to tell this story. Were you into art in general beyond disposable cameras when you were a kid? Oh yeah, I was always drawing, um, painting, did graffiti, skateboarded, made music <laughs> ever since I was a kid. Yeah. Wait, I love that you throw in skateboarding. Is skateboarding art? Oh, without a doubt. And it's what taught me so much, learning how to fail. It's, it's very important in your practice in art, and skateboarding taught me a lot of that. Did you ever decorate your own board? No, not outside of just, like, stickers and whatever. <laughs> just customized it. But no, no, I never took it to that extent. You started an Instagram account called Old Denver. It's a really good follow. What's the idea behind it? Um, originally, it was just to share photographs that you know resemble the the things that I grew up with in Denver that felt like were fading away due to the gentrification and it kind of grew into this community space where people were sharing their photos as well Um, and to me it feels like uh, this digital archive that's kind of living and breathing but also this like feels like a puzzle that had been scattered that's getting put back together. Give me an example of a photograph maybe that was contributed recently or that you took recently that captures a place you're nostalgic for. You know that recently we just learned that there's Rocky's Auto was going to be closing down and I shared a com- an old commercial from it and man a lot of people just like connected with it and remembered all those wacky commercials. Please step out of the car. Is this any way to represent Rockies? You guys are smoking pot. It's legal now. It's still a federal offense, mister. Nice badge, officer. Can I touch it? (laughs) See? That explains why no work gets done. This is ridiculous. I should arrest you. Just things like that is what I'm always trying to share. It's not just about the photographs, but these things that we kind of all collectively grew up on. I wonder if you've been surprised by anything shared in old Denver. Has it taught you something? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's taught me a lot. I mean, because there's people sharing from before I was born, especially a lot of it revolving around the Chicano movement. And and so reconnecting with its history and like having people share a lot of more stories and information, a lot of these names that, you know, to anybody living in North Denver might be household names. To me, it wasn't necessarily because as an immigrant, sometimes we're a little bit sheltered or like, you know, in our own bubble um, and weren't really familiar with what had happened there before. Um, I guess through Old Denver, I got to reconnect with a lot of the community members that, you know, lived and experienced that, but also, you know, shared the knowledge that oftentimes doesn't get preserved through uh, academia or through textbooks. While the Instagram project Old Denver looks outward, this exhibition at the Denver Art Museum is indeed more personal, not just showing Juan Fuentes' life, but also his friends and their immigrant stories. That includes Jeanette Vizguera, who's well-known in Colorado and beyond. Fuentes' images show her yard and her at home with her family. So this is off my photographs. Um, Jeanette Vizguera's family uh, at her home. And, you know, she's had been living in sanctuary in a church for a few years, like over five years. And it's the first time she's kind of been able to 
be out of there and experience like living a more normal life at home and that's what I wanted to highlight you know she's been on Time magazine as one of the most influential people you know she's a very heroic figure or she's always kind of depicted as that heroic figure or like a victim but to me I wanted to highlight just her existing as a mom and you know her everyday experience that is also a big part of that what would you say to I don't know someone around the age you were when you were skateboarding and taking photos with a disposable camera. Someone who has a a flame of artistic talent and is wondering how to direct it. Just to experiment and trust yourself and also don't be afraid to tell your story. I think it's important for artists to understand that art can be a place where we can give ourselves a voice and an opportunity to be authors of our own stories. The experimentation aspect is interesting to me. Um, every, anytime I was entering a new medium or, or trying new things, I never learned it in a traditional way. So to me, it was always experimentation. But I think specifically with this installation, I think I'm breaking away from the traditional way the photography installation is used um, and also appropriating different kinds of images into it as well, I think is an experimental kind of phase for me um which i wasn't necessarily sure of but it felt right and i think it was more of the details needed to tell this story without you know having access to a place or you know sometimes the the camera can only do so much there's one aspect of your work i'd like to talk about which is your generosity. I mean, you get an exhibition at the Denver Art Museum and you make a place not only for your photographs, but your brothers. And then you make a place not only for your stories, but your friends' stories and the stories of people you admire. What does that tell us about you, Juan? (laughs) Um, I don't know. It's just, that was my first instinct is there was a challenge to tell a story and couldn't be done with just my lens and my perspective and to me it wasn't necessarily about generosity I think it just comes through but it was more so about like what made sense it's like I get a space in such a big institution and I you know the reason that I'm in places like this and thinking about certain ideas is because of mentors like Janevis Guerra is because of friendships and to me it just was first instinct to bring them along I never saw it as this opportunity to just be, oh, yeah, I get to just showcase my photographs and and elevate my career or something like that. It never felt that way. It felt like an opportunity to create space for someone like myself that is one in thousands and millions in this country. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thank you. Denver artist Juan Fuentes. His work is part of the exhibition Who Tells a Tale Adds a Tale, Latin America and Contemporary Art. It's on at the Denver Art Museum through March 5th. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
The Pueblo chili may not be as well known as its cousin from New Mexico, the Hatch chili, but fans of fiery flavor know which one tastes better. The pepper from Pueblo is also known as the Mirasol, which translates looking at the sun. And indeed, it does point upwards as it grows under bright southern Colorado skies. Farmers have grown it for more than a century, but in 2005, Colorado State University released an improved variety, thicker and meatier, better for roasting and dicing into green chili, spooned over burritos, enchiladas, and just about everything. The pepper has its own day at the Colorado State Fair, as well as a chili and frijole festival and a specialty license plate. And when the Denver Broncos offered Hatch Chili products at concession stands, local chili fans pushed back. The rivalry was hot, more than a little spicy, and in the end, confirmed Colorado's love for the Pueblo Chili. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Dazzle Jazz. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In these days of social media influencers, have you ever thought about how we make decisions and why? That is at the heart of a discussion featuring Zoe Chance at the Aspen Ideas Festival this past spring. Kibwe Cooper from our audio innovations team brings us her insights. Once upon a time, on an auspicious day in history, you were born. You had no sharp teeth or claws or any means of protecting or even feeding yourself. The only means of survival that you had was your ability to influence other people to take care of you. That's Zoe Chance. She's a behavioral scientist at Yale School of Management and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Influence is Your Superpower. Zoe believes that everyone has the power of an influencer, and that power is naturally inside of all of us. As you grew, you expanded your sphere of influence and you practiced. Before you got to kindergarten, you were negotiating bedtimes and television desserts, all the things that you cared about. You grew and you expanded your sphere of influence further to groups and teams. You grew up and expanded your influence further still, perhaps to organizations. But these days, influence is about more than just influencing the people in your immediate sphere. Social media has given billions of viewers on platforms like TikTok and Instagram inside access to the lives of celebrities and social elites. Their likes and dislikes, hearts, gifts, and emojis influence what we think of ourselves and the world around us. High-impact users or influencers can charge tens of thousands of dollars per sponsored post, according to Forbes. We find the average person has over 10,000 social media post tags or likes associated with them. And, you know, that's a lot. 60% of in-store purchase decisions are influenced by something that someone has seen on a social media post or a blog post. But Zoe Chance says all of us have the ability to harness the power of influence. You just have to learn how. Chance spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival back in June. Earlier in her career, Zoe managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand. Now, Barbie dolls have been a successful product for decades, so Zoe struggled at times to convince the senior leadership at Barbie to implement new ideas. 
That's when Zoe became obsessed with understanding influence. She says learning to influence others isn't difficult or rocket science, but it is a science. Zoe says if we understand the way human beings make decisions, we can better influence the decisions they make. And there's two ways we make decisions. The first involves thinking like an alligator. People's minds work very much like alligators. A place in Orlando, Florida called Gatorland. Has anybody been there? Okay, a few of us. This is the gator capital of the world, a little bit less famous than its neighbor, Disney World. When you go to Gatorland, they have thousands of gators. You can zip line over a gator-infested swamp where they filmed Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You can watch gator wrestling, or you can feed the gators. And I was excited. They give you a piece of meat, number of pieces of meat, and you're throwing them into a pile of gators where I thought they're going to be fighting each other like prehistoric beasts, clash of the titans. But I don't have perfect aim. And what I found is that if you land a piece of meat outside the bite zone, which is between the nose and the tail of a specific alligator, you land it even an inch outside that bite zone, and what happens is nothing. Nobody moves. They wait until a bird comes down <laughs> to pick it up. If you land it in the bite zone, that gator will snap it up so quickly you can hardly see it move. Like human beings, alligators are designed for maximum cognitive efficiency. Alligators have a brain the size of a walnut, a body that can weigh up to half a ton, although they are constantly scanning the environment, and this is like your subconscious mind lurking below the surface of your conscious awareness, they're scanning for threats and opportunities, but the dominant response is nothing, and they ignore it. They ignore almost everything around them. But when they take action, something sufficiently easy, they do so very, very rapidly. So alligator thinking informs our fast decisions. But what about those times where we decide more slowly and carefully? Zoe says that the second kind of decision making is more like a human judge. This is the conscious part, slow, rational, deliberative, effortful, considers only one case at a time, carefully weighing pros and cons. It's cognitively difficult, so it takes mental resources to put our conscious attention on something. So we can only do one thing at a time. The gator part, though, takes almost no effort at all. Zoe says there's no way to manipulate how your brain makes a decision, even if you consider yourself a careful decision maker. Many smart people, like those of us in the room, are thinking, well, maybe lots of people are gator kind of people, but I'm kind of a numbers person, I'm sort of analytical, or the people that I'm trying to influence or I work with are numbers analytical people, they're more judge people. So let's take a look at judges. Actual judges. In a study of 1,100 parole decisions, researchers, and this was taking place in Israel, I don't think the culture is relevant, but how it works in Israel is there's a panel of three judges and they make a collective decision and all day they're making decisions 
hearing cases, and all the researchers were looking at in this study was the time of day and what was the likelihood a prisoner would get out on parole. At the beginning of the day, it's about a two-thirds chance they go home, and then that number declines, declines, there's a spike, decline, decline again, spike, and then another decline. And let's just hear, <laughs> if you have a theory about the spikes, call it out now. What I'm hearing here in the room is food, lunch breaks. Yes, that's all. That's all. These are judges, people. It's their job to be slow, rational, deliberative, effortful, to make decisions as objectively as they can. But like all of the rest of us, they are tremendously influenced by the gator. Researchers who study this stuff estimate that it might be 95% of all of our decisions and behavior are determined by the gator. It turns out that many of the decisions we think of as being rational are actually rationalizing with the input of the gator. So if you know people make some decisions with their judge brain, but most decisions with their gator brain, Zoe believes we can better understand how to influence others. Zoe says there are two strategies to keep in mind when you're trying to influence other people's gator brains, ease and framing. Here's how ease impacts influence. Organizations that have disrupted not just their competition, but their entire industry, almost all of them have done this by innovating on the dimension of ease. To take a prime example, think about Amazon. And think about ways that Amazon has made it so freaking easy for us to buy stuff from them that at least for me, it's harder not to buy stuff from Amazon than it is to buy stuff from them. Almost all of us are lazy almost all of the time because we're always already occupied. Our conscious brain is always already occupied. If ease alone doesn't influence someone, Zoe says how you frame the idea can also be influential. Framing is all about how you're communicating information. Zoe gave a pertinent example of how scientists frame the conversation around climate issues. When you think about climate change versus climate crisis, climate change, like, mm, yeah, it seems like it's happening, seems valid. Is it a problem? I don't know, is it a big problem? Probably not. Climate crisis, this is a big problem and we still can take action to fix it, but only if we do so immediately. Neuro research and other surveys have found that in the US, both Republicans and Democrats responded to the frame climate crisis more than any other frame. If that sounds easy, Zoe says figuring out how to frame something can actually be tricky. Zoe recommends three types of framing that are especially effective in influencing other people. And the three most powerful frames that I know are framing something as monumental, framing something as manageable, or framing something as mysterious. These are the most flexible and powerful frames um, that I think that you can practice with and teach other people. 
Chance has written about how the title of a book by home organizing expert Marie Kondo captures all three of these influential frames. Kondo's book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. The phrase life-changing feels monumental. The word magical frames things in a mysterious way, and the phrase tidying up makes it all sound manageable. Readers embraced those ideas so much that the book sold millions of copies around the world. With strategies like these, Zoe believes we can all be influential. She says it's important to learn how to influence others because it's a huge part of how others will remember us when we're gone. So influence is not rocket science, but it is a science. And it starts with this very, very simple concept that we are not, almost any of us, asking for as much or from as many people or as often as we could be or should be to be as influential as we might be. And many of us don't even realize that until we start to practice it. Zoe Chance spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. To hear the full presentation, visit aspenideas.org. That was CPR Audio Innovations producer Kibwe Cooper. You can hear more talks from speakers like Zoe Chance in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Find it wherever you listen. And we'll also put a link at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. Finally today, pumpkin spice is already circulating. Before you know it, you'll be seeing Christmas trees and menorahs, which is why we want to talk ever so briefly about the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza in December. It's a big old production that we record on a stage in front of an audience, and we have just opened a contest to musical acts, specifically from Southern Colorado. CPR's Dan Boyce, who's based in Colorado Springs, and Vicki Greger, longtime music director at KRCC, will help us review the entries. All right, first, so why Southern Colorado? Well, that's where Vicki and I work, and, and we wanted our part of the state represented in the extravaganza, right? That is right. And uh, so, Vicki, so for the purposes of this contest, we're going to make this simple. We're going to define Southern Colorado as south of the town of Castle Rock and east of the Continental Divide. So basically the southeast quadrant of the state. The winning act needs to be based somewhere in there. And Vicki, what kind of act are we looking for? Well, whatever, Dan, a solo performer, an ensemble, we're hoping to get as many entries as possible playing. We have an entry for him online where you will upload audio or video of the song you'd like to play for the holiday show, and you and I will pick the winner. Right, so you can either uh, celebrate us or we're the ones to blame uh, based on who ends up <laughs> on stage. And here's the deal with this. You do not need to be a professional musician for this. We really would love to see more entries than fewer ones. And we also ask that the song just be seasonal somehow for this December show. You can interpret that how you like, but 
That's the kind of stuff that we're looking for. Yeah, also, I mean, we welcome covers of holiday songs, but what we'd really prefer to hear are your original songs that celebrate or mark the season. Even better if it celebrates the season and how about Southern Colorado as well? Brilliant. Yeah, so please uh, reach out to any musicians you know in Southern Colorado you think might want to enter. Not only would that act get to perform in front of the live audience for the show, but the song will also be broadcast statewide on Colorado Matters. And we're telling you right now because this is when the contest is open, now until the end of October. That's right, a Halloween deadline for your Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or other December holiday song. And you can find the entry form at krcc.org slash holiday contest. Yep, that's krcc.org slash holiday contest. Thanks so much, and we can't wait to hear your songs. Dan Boyce and Vicki Greger there. And in addition to the statewide exposure, this is also a paying gig. We'll put you up in a hotel near the venue as well. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to this team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me on Twitter at CPRWarner. The show is at Colorado Matters. And we are indeed everywhere you get your podcasts. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.